How pleasant, how good, how noam, how dark in noam. It is Sheves Achim Vachayos Kamiachat. Brothers and sisters sit together after a long winter of COVID, which kept us apart. The Or of Hanukkah is very much still in the air. And I think there are three comparisons. Obvious comparisons between Darchei Noam, Chappelle's, Rosh Rachel, and Hanukkah. Torah, Mishpacha, and the Koach Hamid. Torah. Hanukkah is one of the Chagim, but specifically about Torah Shabal Peh, the oral Torah. It was in Bayashani, Second Temple period, which is the period of the growth of Torah Shabal Peh. It's a Mitzvah of Rabbinic Mitzvah. We know that 36 candles are against the 36 hours that the Waraganos, the original light, shone. And that's the light which is still there. This forum say, Talon de Torah. And something we all learned in our Chappelle's experience was the centrality of Torah. Talmud Torah, Kenege Kulam. And just as the Shemin had to be a Pach Tahor, to be pure Shemin, we all knew that there was the search for the pure Torah. What do the sources say? Without preservatives, without attitude, without agendas. Makatuba Torah. That's the or of Torah. Mishpacha, family. Ner Hanukkah is Ner Ishu Beso. One candle per home, one candle per family. Hanukkah is a family time. Sit together and there is. And Darchenom is all about Mishpacha. Men and women. Chappelle's and Midrash Rachel. A couple's program. Constant. Shalom Bayeshurim. Klai Yisrael. Jewish people is as strong as their families are. I think one of the great messages underneath always in yeshiva and seminary and amongst the alumni is how central families are. And finally, Hanukkah is all about Harabim Biyad Ma'atim. The many in the hand of the few. The koach of a few dedicated individuals. The incredible historic impact that they had. And today, when everything is about huge, never to be seen in history before numbers, Dachinom reminds us, ultimately it's about the individual. Each neshama finding its path, the respect for the student, the Talmud and the Talmidah, that they make their decisions about where their life goes. So it's a night to hear the panel, outstanding panel. It's a night to have good food together, of course, enjoy each other's company. But it's also a night that we again come together and remember what our Darkin experience, Darkinom experience was all about. And get in touch with that. Enjoy. Welcome to everybody. It's uh, really a pleasure and uh, really heartwarming to see everybody again. I think this is the first alumni get-together we're having since COVID, and then we're wrong. Um, and it's just great. So um, we chose three questions that came in from alumni over the last couple of months about various topics. 
and we chose three panelists, each one an expert in the area. And um, I'm not going to spend time except turning it over to them. But first, we want to hear a few minutes from each of them about the influence and principles that guided their lives and their rabbinic careers. Um, two, three minutes from each one just as an introduction. Um, everybody who knows Rabbi Shurin, most of you know Rabbi Lerner, and only a few of you know the other Rabbi Simi Lerner. This will be a very good introduction, and it will also open the evening. So maybe we will start with Rabbi Shurin and ask him to spend uh, three, four minutes again. The influences and principles that have guided your life and rabbinic career. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. 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 and the Rabbanim and the crowd over here. Uh, the first part was please describe the influences and principles that have guided your rabbinic career. So for me, it's a little bit awkward because my influences are standing next or sitting next to me and sitting in front of me and sitting next to me over here, and I have other rabbeim. I'm a proud product of Chappelle's, and um, you know my my inspiration started probably when I started running NCSY in Montreal when I was 19. But my real influences in terms of what I'm doing today um, definitely comes from my education at um, at Chappelle's. Uh, you know, I pride myself. I, I, you know, I was telling Don of the story. And I'll just share two quick stories. Um, I found a little negative, but it's not, really that, it's not everybody's fault. I just sort of feel proud about this, the, my reactions. When I was first, when I, a, a couple moved to Beitar, and both of them were Bali Chuva, and their experiences were very much in the Haredi world from the time they became from till they moved to Beitar with a young family. And at the time they came to my house for Sukkot, and we were talking, I was saying my wife has a cousin who spent 15 years in a yeshiva called Karen Biyavna. He was a dayan, he learned with Rav Cook, and then he opened up a koelov, a dayanus koelov in Beersheba. And we were just saying, like on the side, that we're just going there for sukkahs. And they both asked me, is there a Haredi community in, in Beersheba? And I said, I'm not sure, my wife's cousin is very strong, that he me. And again, the, and they just said without even thinking, oh, can you eat by their home? And I'm like, can I eat by their home? I don't come to a fingertip in learning. What does that mean? Can I eat by their home? And I just remember, like, my all my education in Chappelle's from all of my rabbim, just to to always try to make a distinction between halacha and hashkafa, and it really makes no difference what kind of keeper we're wearing on our head when we're learning up a halachic sugya. And it's always tries. I always try to maintain that everyone has to find the right path that speaks to their neshamas in terms of hashkafa, with just a complete complete respect for. Um, with halacha, without compromising in halacha, and that really makes no difference what what kind of kippah. On the other hand, I remember a student of mine came to me and she said to me, Rabbi Lerner, you know, I don't understand. I, I've been to Ranana and I've been to Efrat and I've been to Neve Daniel and I've been to Alon Shvot. How come Haredin don't make Aliyah? I'm like, what? <laughs> you mean, I said, have you been to Aronoff? Have you been to Ramat Have you been to Ramat Pechemes? So I just remember right again, my, my education in Chappelle just sort of slapped me across the face. So in terms of one of the things that guide me 
in terms of being a Rebbe in, in all these schools. And I proudly say I teach in Chappelle's and I teach in a, you know, Dati Lumi uh, seminary where I'm also, Baruch Hashem, um, have a, a nice role over there and I teach in a seminary for people who are completely not even religious or Mali Chuba. So I just feel the education that I got in Chappelle's, that Derech of Darach Noam is something that very much guides me in terms of how I want to help influence. Um, you know, in terms of principles, um, as a Rebbe, I, I, you, want, you, know, you want to be able to say things to your students, and I'll end with this. I see Rabbi Shoshan is sitting here, and there's something that Rabbi Shoshan has said to me many, many years ago, and it's been a principle of mine, and one of my students just quoted it in my name in one of his Divrei Torah. So as a Rebbe, you want to be able to say things to your students without sort of like, you have to be able to give people direction. And Rabbi Shoshan used to always tell me, you can say nearly anything to nearly anybody, it just depends on how you say it. And in terms of being a Rebbe and trying to have an influence on people and trying to help people find, find direction, so you can, you want to speak your mind, but you can say nearly anything to nearly anybody, and it just depends on how you, you say it. So those are some of the first thoughts that came to my mind when I had four minutes to speak about um, my influences in, um, principles. in, in principles. Okay, so... Um there are many, many influences that I had uh, in my life. Uh, my parents, my grandfather, many of my uh, teachers in Chaim Berlin, uh, I mean, unfortunately, all my influences are um, um, <clears throat> but at different points in my life, I picked different people, even after I came to Israel. I had people who influenced me. Some were more um, more influential. Some were a little bit less influential, depending how much time I was able to spend with different people. Um, but I do think that uh, whether it is, you know, Rav Hutner or my parents or Rav Yaakov or maybe Rav Yishaper Soloveitchik, Zechron Levrocha as well, um, uh, and many others, many other Rabbeim, Soloveitchik's brother was my uncle, Rabbi Soloveitchik, they all had certain amount of influences, so I'm basically a, um, a, a, uh, a combination, or uh, when you add up all the different influences, that becomes basically me. Um, <clears throat> those different people taught me certain principles in life. Uh, if I had to, uh, I could probably sit down and give a lecture on each one of those people and how they influenced me. Uh, but I would probably say that um, there was what I found with you know all of these people, um, to the best of my memory, is that um, uh, honesty, to be honest with yourself. Be honest with your students. To be honest with people that you meet. Uh, open and honesty was very, you know, something that influenced me tremendous. With, you know, uh, when I spoke to, when I spoke to Rev Soloveitchik, when I spoke to my grandfather, my parents, uh, we had a very honest, open relationship, and I thought it was very healthy to have that type of relationship. Um, to say what you feel. Of course, you have to say it, like Rabbi Lerner said, you have to say it in a way, you have to mark it in a way that's respectful and 
you know, the other person can hear it. But uh, the idea of, you know, being completely honest, uh, you know, be able to say, I don't know when I don't know. I'll research it when, you know, when I have a chance. You know, I have that, had that many, many times. Uh, my students have asked me questions that um, I never would have thought of in a million years being in typical yeshivas. Um, and that was, uh, that was very, very, for me, it was a very um, eye-opening. And it really gave a lot of depth to my Judaism. Um, and thinking about, like, how I answer these questions that the students had. Many times I had to research it, both with regard to uh, sources and different great rabbis and stuff. But um, if I had to, you know, give, like, a one-liner, it would be that I never judge Judaism by Jews. I judge Judaism by the Torah and very great Jews. And I have a very high standard of great Jews. You don't become a great Jew in my book very easily. But Baruch Hashem, I did have contact with many great Jews. And that's what I found mostly was openness and honesty in dealing with, you know, with yourself and dealing with other people. Good evening. Shavua Tov. I'm with Mission from Rosh Hashiva, the panelists and the, uh, the item in general. Um, trying to ascertain or bring together a principle and an influence um, I'm new to this game um, in terms of teaching and education I got into it about, I don't know, about seven or eight years ago um, I suppose the biggest influence in my life was in terms of my rabbinic career was my wife Rivka because when you, when you have an idea the, the, the worst thing for an idea to sit and is to stagnate in your own mind when you have someone who you're able, and I was just mentioning through a schoolmaker, the ability to bounce your ideas off your significant other, but not only bounce your ideas off, to be influenced by, change through the experience. Not that people speak about vulnerability being key in a marriage, but it's also intellectual vulnerability. My perspective radically changed when I got married. My openness to other thinkers, my openness to other ways of looking at the world was because of Rivka. She wasn't able to be with us here tonight. We recently had a a son, um, um, so she would have loved to be here. Um, but yeah, so in terms of influences, I says in terms of my direction as a, a, a Rebbe, as a Machalich, was, was probably Rivka in terms of the, being able to actually like track how, how I had one approach and then it molded over time and we see each other influencing the way we both approach things. And in terms of a principle, when I talk to my Talmudim, in trying to pinpoint a principle in terms of their own growth within Yeshiva and moving out, is to think, find a thinker, find someone great, find a perspective within Yadud, find a vision of someone who's great, who's created a worldview, who calls to you, who calls to your neshama. That, that individual has developed a worldview. It could be a Rishon, it could be an Achron, it could be someone within our generation. And once you can immerse yourself in one worldview, you then can appreciate what it is to have a worldview. Then, as you grow, you can then develop it. You can then add from other thinkers that you found attractive. But you'll know what it is to have a worldview. When you hear a question, when you hear an idea, you'll have where to slot it. So, to summarize it, Rivka and ascertaining a worldview. So. Now that you got to know the panelists a little better, uh, we're going to... Well, then the difficult questions. We're going to start with Rabbi Yitzchak Lerner. What we asked him to deal with is 
the problem in today's digital age, everything can be looked up and asked to Rabbi Google. There's Safari, there's Ask the Rabbi chats, both Chappelle's and Majesha Hill even have their own, which personally I'm not that comfortable with, as you'll see why in a minute, but certainly when there was a, there was a suggestion that we open that chat worldwide, I closed that down immediately. I said, Arabeim are here to answer questions, uh, internet questions only from Talmidim and Talmidos. Um, but it's really a problem because it undermines the ability to connect with a personal Rav. And I think we want Rabbi Lerner to deal with the question of the importance of a personal Rav and how to properly navigate the ability to ask questions of Google um, and internet chats, but making sure that you're getting a personalized answer. Okay. Um, it's a little awkward because I happen to be a rabbi on four of these WhatsApp groups <laughs> with uh, probably close to 200 people on each WhatsApp group. And um, while I happen to agree with everything that Rabbi Kalinsky said and the convenience of a WhatsApp group for the people asking and the ability for me to keep on learning for as myself, I'm constantly I'm constantly looking at questions and I'm constantly... Um, I'm constantly learning, speaking to Rabbi Cohen, speaking to my other friends who are rabbis on the panel, on the on the WhatsApps. But that being said, one of the things that Rabbi Cohen and I very much lament in our Midrash Rachel group chat, and very often we say to each other, is that we need to call this person who has the question. We can't. This is not a question that's a that's for a group chat. And I'll try to speak about four different things that I think are important, which I have one and a half min- minutes for each one of the four things. Um. The first one was I, I landed in Newark Airport, and the person I was supposed to go, to, the house I was supposed to go in, I, my problem was I was supposed to land at uh, six o'clock, five thirty in the morning, and I didn't want to go to their home. And he said to me, "Not a problem. You, I go to a dafyaimi shir in one of the sh- in one of the shoals in Englewood." And he said, "Just meet me at the shul." And he went to the shul. There was around, I don't know, thirty-five balabatim who were getting up at five thirty in the morning. This one shul going to a dafyaimi. And I said to the guy, I said, wow, it's so nice. Said, because there's so many Dafyoimi shears online, and there are so many Dafyoimi shears that you can do with in YouTube, and you can do it while you're driving in your car. And he said to me, without even, without even blinking an eye, he goes, yeah, but we don't have a relationship with the rabbi. And he says, when I get up every day, and I smooth with the rabbi, first of all, to hear his prayer in the Dafyoimi, but the shmooze that I have with the rabbi before the shear, the shmooze that I have with the rabbi after the shear, the relationship I'm building with the rabbi, that's something that you just can't compare when you're on a WhatsApp group and when you're Googling something. That's, that's number one. Number two, when it comes to Shilas on Google and um, when it comes to Shilas on Google and Safari where you couldn't, and, and I'm guilty of it too. I've, I've gone to Rabbi Google a few times and I get to look at so many sources that I may, may not have seen. But when you're asking a Shaila, there are so many nuances that a person has to know when they're answering a Shaila. And all of a sudden, that you know, you can give an answer on a WhatsApp group, and then all of a sudden you hear that answer, and people don't even realize that maybe I gave that answer for that one person, and then the next thing you know, everyone's relying on it. It can go the Kula and the Khumra. I'll just give you a quick example that just popped to my head when I was thinking about this. But like for Balei Tshuva, you know, someone asked me a shayla about toivli, if I eat in my parents' home, they don't toivli their dishes, but the dishes are are kosher. 
but they don't table their dishes. One of the famous that you know the person who owns the dish has the responsibility to table the dishes. And for shalom bias issues, you can go and eat in somebody's home if the dishes aren't tabled if you know they're kosher because they own the dish. It's not your dish. And I remember somebody put that on one of the WhatsApp groups, and then they were telling me afterwards, yeah, though I don't even have to you know anywhere I go, I don't even have to worry about spilus kalim anymore because. Um, I saw in a WhatsApp group that you can just eat off dishes that aren't belong to you, that aren't tabled, and it's, it's a, it just became a blanket. I mean, no, no, there is a little bit of a nuance here. It's a shalom bayis issue. And then another person told me, well, their parents don't mind tabling the dishes. I said, well, okay, maybe this, this child, this chuba doesn't apply to you anymore. And all of a sudden, there are so many different ways, and not only that, knowing a person, where a person's coming from. And that's why so often I'll, I'll, I'll private message, especially on the student WhatsApp groups, very often I'll private message somebody and say, we, you, this was not a question appropriate for a WhatsApp group. Let's, we really have to speak. And I'm trying to hopefully mechanic that person in terms of asking a question sometimes that just shouldn't, um, that shouldn't be there. Also, the third thing is Aitza versus Psakalacha. There's one thing called the Psakalacha. And, you know, certain things are sort of cut and dry. And you could ask Rabbi Google. Somebody just told me there's an app for Kashrus, you know, was it using 24 hours, was it clean, was it this, was it... And, <laughs> and there's like a whole app, and you're plugging it in. You know, clean, not use 24 hours, but oven, toaster, pot, every, everything you can get. But So that may be true for Psak, but even then I still think there's nuances. But then in Aitsa, to have a person who knows who you are, and I always tell the students in Chappelle, a rav, when you go for an Aitza, he's not telling you to stop thinking for yourself, and he's not telling you, she's not, you know, your mentor is not telling you what to do. But if all of a sudden I have a question to do either A or B, those are my options. And I just want to hear what a neutral person who I know is a Ben Torah, who knows me, has to think. You can't get that on Google. You can't get that on the WhatsApp group. And how many times does that neutral person tell me, you missed a mistake. It wasn't A or B. What about, there's another option called C. And I was like, oh my gosh, I never even thought about C. And the importance of having that rough to sort of like help guide you. And if all of a sudden we're just always going to be relying on Google, so you're losing the relationships, you're losing the nuances, you're losing the, the eights apart. And, you know, one of the things that thank God I don't see in Chappelle's or Midrash at Rachel, um, but I teach in the 18-year-old schools. And this is going to be, I guess, more relevant for us who have children who are very involved in, you know, who are from kids who are but very, 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 very involved in shiurim all the time. And I just see with the 18-year-old girls, they're so, like, involved in their shiurim online, and they have an opportunity now, while they're in seminary or yeshiva, to, like, make relations with the rabbis. And they're like, oh, I can get that shear on Internet. I can get that shear on YU anytime. I can get that shear on Torah anytime. And then all of a sudden, they're losing that whole element, number one, of relevance, examples that are given um, to, to, what, to what they need to hear. Because all of a sudden, you're just hearing the shear. But when I'm giving a shear to my guys in Chappelle's, I can give examples that are relevant to you. And when I'm giving my shear to the, the girls in Midrash Rachel, I can give my, my examples and my jokes to the girls that are, that are there. And I teach all the places. You're losing out on that fourth thing is irrelevant. So I think relationships, nuance, AIDSA, and um, relevance. So those are some of the four things I was thinking about. I feel like I'm at the Oscars over here because I have Donna sitting or waving one minute left. So I feel like, so I'm going to stop over here, and I'm sure there's much more to be said over here. You want to add something? Yeah. Um, yes, there's no question that uh, 
it's extremely important to develop the relationships. And as I spoke before, those relationships that I had were real. Um, and I don't think there's a substitute for that today just because we have uh, Google or classes online. Um, the Gemara says, even in the times of the Gemara, to actually be in the home and really get to know a great uh, personality, whether it's a great rabbi or rebbitzin or somebody else, um, as opposed to just listening to their lectures, there's no comparison. That's why the Gemara says, Godel Shimushi Yosemili Mudo. And therefore, uh, we, we have, we could look at uh, Google as, a, as an advantage of get a quick answer, but it can never be a substitute for developing real relationships. And the truth of the matter is that um, I think the generations today are going to eventually see that they are lacking something not only socially, but with regard to the giving of the Torah. The Torah has to be given uh, in, in real life, and it cannot be given, you know, by, you know, you know, by some sort of recording or some sort of uh, other, you know, uh, advanced uh, way of, of communicating. So I really think that that's uh, what Rabbi Learn is saying is 100% true. And uh, there's a certain masumatan, let me add that also, you know, when you're sitting with somebody, you ask a question, you give an answer, so that's a question and answer, but there sometimes has to be a masumatan here, giving and taking. I always had a criticism of rabbis that just, you know, you ask them a question, it was as if somebody or something asked them a question. There's always questions you have to ask in order to give that answer to that particular person. So, like I said, did they, I remember Shlomo Zalman Rorbach once saying to me, he, I, I came with a student, and he said to me, "I don't know, I don't know her. How can I give her an answer?" Right? Well, today you don't have to know the person. It's Google. No, that's okay. I was going to just add, if I may, uh, Rabbi Sharon mentioned Rabbi Shlomo Zalman. Um, so we also had a story many years ago, many many years ago, the early years of the yeshiva. There was a student who asked Rabbi Herschel and I a question. He didn't like our answer, so he went to Rabbi Shlomo Zalman. And he came back the next day, so we had new, what did Rosh Zalman say? Ein l'cha rabbein b'shapels? That was his answer. One of the things that you have to know happens, and this is classic, and I know a couple of first-hand stories, where you go into a gadol and you ask him a question, and he gives you an answer, and an hour later somebody comes in and asks exactly what appears to be the same question, and gets exactly the opposite answer. And the shamas, of course, asks what's going on. For this person, he needed to hear that. And for that person, he needed to hear that. And I'm sure Rabbi Sharon can tell you many stories of Rabbi Yaakov doing that. Okay, for the next question, we're going to turn to Rabbi Simi Lerner. This is very, very tricky. In today's world, we live in a world of progressive values and politics. And it's too often unpopular to hold authentic Torah views and Torah values. So we need some suggestions for maintaining our self-confidence in our values when the world around us seems adversarial. Avram Avinu was known as Avram Ivri. Kola Olam Mitzarechad, everybody is on one side of the river, Avram is on the other side. Today it seems like Torah Jews are very, very isolated in the world of values. And I'm going to turn to Rabbi Lerner for some insights and thoughts on that. 
So discussing a topic like this is obviously going to be sensitive, and there's going to be nuance that's going to be lost in an eight-minute response. So in, in discussing the idea of values, confidence, and how to maintain self-confidence in, in a world where the world looks at our values as unpopular, as the Rav just mentioned, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about values, and I want to talk about confidence. When we say values, let's be precise what we're talking about. Both on the left and the right side of culture has worldviews that oppose the way we look at the world. But let's break it down. If you look at the left side of politics, or uh, let's call it the left side of culture, you see a new sexual ethic. You see the breaking down of boundaries between genders. You see the breaking down of the family unit as being the ideal now, these are all challenges to the Jewish people who hold traditional views. But on the other side, on the right side, there's also dangers that are lurking there as well that stand against Torah values. Especially in, I suppose, in America, but also in England, there's a very heavy evangelical presence and a very heavy evangelical influence. So certain evangelical trends seep their way into Jewish worldviews. For example, um, prosperity gospel, a certain perspective that you're wealth and your amount of money you have is somehow a vision on your virtue. How good you are based off how wealthy you are. That idea we can see seep into the way how people have a certain disdain or a certain distance or aloofness that people have towards the poor. That's also a danger that can seep into a true Torah value. The prophets would throw up at such an approach. Our money is not our money. It's in a preachy way. I obviously can't live this completely. But our money is not our money. We, we hold it. We hold it to, to give. And thereby, a certain aloofness that comes about because of other influences, we also must stand against. So we have on the left, we have clear and present danger. We can clearly see where the issue lies. But on the right, you have the same. There are other influences that can threaten a Torah perspective. But I think the important thing to do here is to distill where these come from. And what I mean by that is, if we can approach these other, other perspectives and show how they're not a world apart, but we're speaking a similar language, but the Torah has an answer. Once you appreciate the Torah has an answer to these worldviews, you can gain confidence that you're holding something special to, to break it down. On the left side of culture, it's not that they are, they're all insane. I know people like speaking like this. Everybody's insane, but we've got to be very careful because a huge amount of sensitivity is needed in these cases. A massive amount of sensitivity is needed in these cases. You don't want to come to a situation where, in the name of Torah values, you desecrate them with cruelty and insensitivity. We have to discuss these things with sensitivity, but at the same time, we have to understand where we stand. What is the root or the foundational principle that this worldview is based off? Simply speaking, a suggestion could be made that it's an obsession with fairness, an obsession with tolerance. Tolerance and fairness are a value we hold. But if you make it the be-all and end-all, you come up with a very, very bizarre worldview. If fairness and everybody feeling okay, which once again, there is a Torah value embedded in that. But if it becomes the only value, this becomes very dangerous. And on the right side of culture, you can see another problem. The idea of sovereign responsibility, individual responsibility is a value that we hold dear. But it cannot be the only value. It cannot be the only value that we hold up in front as being the sovereign value. What is the Torah? The Torah is teaching us how to balance values. We have a rich ethical palette. There are many values the Torah is encouraging us to balance, and it's not always easy. 
Yes, it is unfair. I think it was Tom Sowell who put it. It is unfair that some people are really good at violin. What do we do about that? Well, it's unfair. We could outlaw violin to stop that unfairness. We would seem that to be quite bizarre. So, we discuss the issue and it comes down to an imbalance of values. But remember, that means you're talking to them. You understand where they're coming from. Now let's talk about confidence. What is confidence? Simply speaking, it comes from the Latin, co Vitae, which means with trust. You know, the Christians say trust, or they say have faith. That comes from the word fidelity, which comes from the word in Greek, which is pistis, which means trust. With trust. And there's something similar in our lexicon that has to that. We call it emuna. So in essence, we're, saying, we're asking the question here is how can we have emuna in this set of values that the Torah has? How can we have emuna in the way Hashem has asked us to embed ourselves in the world? And that changes the question. I'm not being asked to be, be self-confident in, in, a, in a world that's opposed to me. No. I'm being asked to have confidence, to have trust in the balancing of values that the Torah asks of me. So how do we do that? Well, then classic answers fall into place. You build your confidence, you build your trust off a foundation. And you develop your foundation. Be it philosophical, be it emotive. You look at the rational foundations of Torah. That doesn't mean you know it's true. It doesn't mean you have proof that it's true. It means you have enough to commit yourself to it, to have trust in it. And then even though when you are faced with a worldview that is opposed to our worldview, with love and sensitivity you can say, this is where my trust lies. You have the philosophical side. You also have the emotive side. The fact that the calling Judaism has to you the calling of Judaism and how it asks you to look at the world, the fact that the world we experience today is progressively becoming more Jewish, the idea of dignity, rights, equality, these are Jewish ideas. You can take pride in that. And a combination of the story of the Torah, as well as the foundation from a reason's point of view, can you build together to make an edifice that that which your confidence can stand on. So, to recap this idea. We spoke about the idea of values. Values being not this, it's them, they're crazy. They don't know what they're talking. No. They are looking at the world through a lens. And our objection isn't that that's a lens. Our objection is that that's not the only lens. There's a very, very good book you should read by Jonathan Haidt. It's called Moral Foundation. It's called, it's called The Righteous Mind. Where he, he develops an idea that is very valuable. The idea that there are many different moral principles. And the goal as a balanced human being is to balance those values. So, we distill, both from the left and the right, where they're coming from and where we have to stand against. In the examples I gave, an obsession with fairness or an obsession with individual responsibility. They're not the highest value. And then we broke it down to confidence. The idea that confidence is having faith. Not in the Christian sense necessarily, but having faith is in having trust. Trust that the Torah is the mission we've received. It is the mission and it is the greatest mission. You look at it as being the greatest balance of values that the world needs to see. And thereby, you don't have to attack. You have to be a beacon. And by accepting that, you become a beacon and you build it off a foundation. You build it off a foundation of reason and a foundation of emotion, of spirit. And on that foundation, you can stand proudly in the world. Do you want to add anything? Uh, Maybe. Um... I just want to, you know, basically, I mean, I want to like sort of put it in a, maybe a little bit more simpler, um, <laughs> is that um, the more you study Torah, the more you'll have the knowledge 
to counteract those. You'll have the confidence and the knowledge to counteract, you know, the different um, new values, uh, new ideologies that come out. Um, I certainly agree that you can't you can't just dismiss them. A lot of times that's what we want to do, and a lot of times I've found that many of my students or alumni, their children, had their had certain values dismissed by their teachers, and it it really doesn't. Uh, do very they're, do very good for their Judaism. Um, so really, uh, most is most important is to learn Torah that you know to find out number one are these values also Torah values, and if they're not, what does the Torah have to say about them? And the more you study, and the more you look more deeply into the Torah, I have no doubt that you will find answers. So where the Torah feels that you know these values have, um, they have a certain amount of uh, legitimacy, and where well, they don't have legitimacy, because um, I do find that um, people—I don't know if I would call them great people—but people just sort of dismiss. And I think that's what Rabbi Lerner was talking about when he said, like, you know, you can't be insensitive. You know, don't, don't just dismiss it. That you, let's th- understand what where the world is coming from. And what is our um, what is our answer? What is our uh, position? And I think you can have full confidence because it's not recently, but it's thousands of years that new issues have come up um, in all different worlds. You know, in the in the world of um, of um, you know where there were K rights who challenged. So there were we showed them that dealt with the K rights. When there was the Ascola that challenged, there were Achronim that dealt with Ascola. And they dealt with them very well. And those, these were new challenges. And many times you'll find that commentaries 1,200 years ago didn't have to deal with what the commentaries de- dealt with 200 years ago. So that's true about the world today. And uh, we know that we have very learned people that can give us the confidence that the Torah has an answer for these uh, for these uh, challenges. Um, I think I want, I'm, I'm going to take it in a little bit of a different direction in terms of how to maintain it. You know, in terms of my my values being challenged. You know, I'm going from Beitar to Chappelle's to Midrashic Moriah. Every once in a while, I go to the Gush Tzfat or Tiveria. So I'm not I'm not getting such big challenges in terms of my own Torah values. Thank God. But when I speak to my students who are now working and who are now in college campuses that aren't necessarily orthodox campuses or even orthodox campuses, and they ask me for advice, I usually tell them, like, first of all, I, I would try to stay away from the discussions with people. I'm not sure if you as, as the orthodox Jewish world is going to change the entire political and va- the liberal, liberal value system that's going on on both, like you said, the life, left and the right. But one of the things that just comes to my mind of Yosef and Kisma in, in, in Pirkei Abbas when they asked him, you know, do you want to come to our place to teach? He said, I just want to live in a Makam Torah. And I think that one of the ways to maintain it is if you're going to be in your law office and you're going to be in your accounting office and you're going to be in your, your campuses, you need to have this oxygen mask that at the end of the day you can come home to and just be in a community where you have Rebam and you have people and you have other Shemri Shabbat's families and other families that are keep on that are growing in Torah and mitzvahs for us to maintain our confidence in what we're doing. And I think just practically, I always tell people you need to have that oxygen mask of a community where you're living with people who have similar values, 
who aren't challenging you at every corner that you're that you're turning. So just one other let's make some a little bit more practical if people are out there. I think it's just important for us to realize to have that uh, that life support system because the world is going really crazy. I'd just like to add a, a couple of other additional insights. Um, one of the um, problems is straw men. Uh, many times we are called upon to defend things in Judaism that are simply not true. Um, just this week, I don't want to say which newspaper I was reading. I don't want to make myself that. And everything they wrote against Orthodox Judaism was false. What do I mean? They said, you guys think this and look how ridiculous it is. Except we never say that. And you've got to be careful that, they're, that you're not defending straw men. Because they like to put in our mouths things that we really don't think. And you've got to be very careful and aware of it. The other thing, uh, a piece of advice, is don't try to convince anybody. Because it's not going to work. Many times we're so insecure about our own values and our own principles that we think, oh, when they attack us, we have to convince them because maybe they're right. But if I can convince them that I'm right, then I've got more confidence. And it, it never is going to work. And the one of the beautiful things about our super liberal multicultural society gives us a perfect answer when somebody says, but how could Judaism, how could you accept that? And the simple answer is, it works for me. You work to it. This works for you. This works for me. And you don't need to defend anything anymore. So keep that in mind. You're not required to defend all of our principles. If you have confidence in it, don't think you need to defend it to anybody else or convince anybody else. You have to have your own confidence. Okay, the final question. We've been through a lot in the last few years. We mentioned that this is the first alumni get-together since COVID hit us. Uh, there have been elections, five I think, um, wars, protests, and it doesn't look like the challenges are going to go away. That's on a communal level. Then we have personal challenges, whether it's illness, children, parnosa. These are all personal challenges. There is a mitzvah ibdu es Hashem b'simcha. So, we need some strategies, we need some insights to activate and maintain simcha in a time of volatility and challenges. And we're going to ask Rabbi Shuren for the secret. Yeah, I want to thank uh, the person who made up that question uh, for deciding that I could answer that question in eight minutes. Um, <clears throat> so... Um, you know, I, I decided to really focus more on personal challenges because, you know, when I, I, I have this feeling that even though there's been five elections and it's cost us a lot of money and we're not really happy with how government is, is um, developed in Israel, no one has told me, no one came into the school or at the Chappelle's or Mishrael and said to me, you know, I couldn't sleep last night because there were already five elections. Right? But when we have personal problems, that that does help. That does make us lose sleep. So therefore, I have you know like I give a one line answer. You know my Rashiva, that's a Kohen used to say, "God fear What does it mean? It means that God is has here. You know when it comes to let's say, Lohalenu, uh Iran trying to attack us or terrorism or all these things that. We have to deal with anti-Semitism throughout the world. 
anti-Israelism throughout the world. Um, you know, the, 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 the one-line answer is, is that, you know, we have to, we're watching a chess game being played. And, you know, when you see a chess game being played, you know, you're, you're really excited about it. So you could turn into an exciting thing that, you know, five elections, maybe God wants to tell us something about the, the, about the government of Israel. Right? And maybe the government is and needs uh, a different type of government. Right? So, uh, I'm going to leave it at that, but I would like to really more, talk more about a, um, about, you know, people's personal, um, struggles. Let's call it, you know, challenges and struggles. Um, which, of course, are things like Parnassa, you know, making a living, and then there's, of course, death in families, you know, people lose, you know, um, parents, uh, spouses, children, Lo'aleinu, um, and there's challenges in marriages that people have. You know, people could be married and not happily married. Um, these are these are things that people lose sleep over, and it's understandable that they do. I have to tell you that, you know, just sort of, um, it may even sound a little bit funny, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I, I did, you know, myself and Esther really we didn't have these types of challenges. So um, I feel like you know the uh, Reb Zusha, you know, and they said to Reb Zusha, you know, they said to Mezer Richard Magid, a chassid said to to Mezer Richard Magid, you know, how do you maintain happiness if you're suffering? So he says, ask Reb Zusha. So he goes to ask Reb Zusha. Reb Zusha says, I don't know why he told you to ask me. I never suffered. Right? So, I, I really actually do feel, I know Rosusha did actually suffer and he was a great tzaddik, he was able to overcome it. But I, I, we didn't have any really great sufferings. Of course we went through, people go through hard times and difficult times. Nobody doesn't have struggles. I don't care how rich you are, or how poor you are, or happily married you are, there's always going to be struggles in life. Okay? And the question of course is, how do I maintain or become happy with those struggles? So we sort of we certainly have to first define, I hope I guess very quickly, what is osher or simcha, happiness in life. And my definition is that it's an inner feeling of satisfaction and contentment with life, feeling fulfilled. It's it's not like, you know, uh, happy for the moment. It's this inner feeling of satisfaction, right? You you content with life. You feel fulfilled in your life. So that's something you take with yourself, even as you struggle. Uh, you know, I, I, one example was that the first time when I lost my father was the first time I really sat shiva, uh, and it was interesting that I felt, you know, I felt myself a little bit to see, like, you know, am I a happy person? And I felt that I was a very, very happy person, and yet. I was very, very sad at the loss of of my parent, right? So I felt I could still be happy and have a sad situation at the same time because it's not a conflict. It's a situation that a struggle that we go through by losing a parent or someone else in the family or um, a difficult situation, difficult parnasa, you know, having monetary challenges, right? But you could be a happy person. And the question is, how do I maintain that? How do I get that happiness? How do I maintain that happiness during these types of struggles? Because we are going to struggle. There's no two ways about it. We can't get out of it. 
So the way, what I really feel is that in order to live a happy life, it has to be number one, a meaningful life. Number two, <clears throat> you have to have loving relationships in your life. Uh, that's like um, spouses, parents, siblings, children. Loving relationships will lead to happiness. Meaningful life will lead to happiness. And most important, I would say, is that you have to look at struggles and challenges as opportunities. If you want to be happy, that's the way you have to look at them. You have to turn those struggles and those um, challenges into opportunities. And the question is, like, what is it an opportunity for? And that we have to really think about because you don't, you don't lead a happy life in ten minutes. I always laugh because, you know, you have these kids who, who, who date, you know, in the Torah world, and they go out three times, and then they get engaged, and three months later they're married, right? And they're expecting happiness. And you don't have, there's no such thing as microwave happiness. You know, you can't put it in the microwave and just like, so if a person, you can have potential happiness by dating, you know, a few times and then getting married, right? But I would, I would say that potential, I mean, I wouldn't be ready to do that because I really want the potential happiness because I know that it's going to be a lot of work. And if we don't have the potential, we'll never have the happiness. So we've got to find out that there is that potential there. But, uh, but achieving happiness means um, achieving something meaningful in life. It means something um, that, uh, that, that I, I change my view about my struggles in life. I have very, very loving relationships, which I develop, right? Just like a parent-child relationship is a development over many years, right? We may not have known it at the beginning because we were very young, but it's over many, many years. And the same thing is true with parents, uh, and, excuse me, with uh, spouses and children. It's, it's a tremendous investment of time and energy to develop that, but of course it's very worth it because... There's nothing greater in life than happiness, right? That's the goal. I think Aristotle said it, right? The goal of every human being is to be happy. And uh, many psychologists said that there's no question asked after that. A lot of times you say, I want to be healthy. Okay, there's a question. Why do you want to be healthy? And there could be a lot of answers. I want to be happy. There's no question after that. Why do you want to be happy? Don't you want to be miserable? Right? There's no question after that. And therefore, that is the goal of every human being. <clears throat> so what we do, what do we do when we live, live with tremendous challenges? Which, as I said before, I didn't have that many great challenges. Um, but my students did. My alumni does. And I've learned how difficult life is for people from my alumni. Um, over many, many years. And literally, if probably more than hundreds, maybe even a couple of thousand um, of people who had very, very serious struggles. Um, these would be uh, struggles of mental health, struggles in marriages, um, family deaths, right, that were horrific. And um, I feel there's only one way to achieve happiness in those cases. It's when I turn those struggles and challenges into the mission that God gave me. In other words, I view it as a mission. I view it as an opportunity. Okay, that's not easy to change that. 
but it needs to be changed. Every struggle struggle needs to look at look be looked at as this is a mission that God gave me. This is an opportunity of me growing from what I'm going through. Okay? If I don't look at it that way, then the struggle is just influencing me and I'm not influencing the struggle. I am passive. Right? Or Salvation used to talk, it, talk about it as the man of fate. You know, the person of fate and um, the person of destiny. You know, the person who just lets the struggle in their life have the better of them and then they can't get up can get out of bed in the morning, right? Destiny means there's something for me to do here. There's really something. And I just want to bring it out, maybe actually in this week's Parsha. I mean, when we say our lives were, you know, it's the pits. Our life, my life is the pits, right? So I don't think we could say that any more than Yosef Atzadik. He spent many years in pits, right? He spent in pits with his brother and then he spent like years in pits, in a bar, he calls it a bar, you know, with, with the Egyptians, right? So, Yosef Atzadik really struggled. But when he finally reveals himself and the brothers are in a state of shock, he says, you didn't send me here. God sent me here. In other words, Yosef could have been very embittered with his brothers. He had every right to be embittered with his brothers. He didn't have an easy life for many, many years, right? But... He chose not. He chose to say, you know what? These were struggles. These were difficult times. Very difficult times Joseph had. But I turned them into, you didn't sell me. God sent me. Okay? This is a mission I was on. I realized that this was a mission. Right? So you have to look at it as um, not just surviving, but actually triumphing over the particular challenge that I'm having here. I don't survive, I triumph over it because, um, I mean, we could look at it as, as, you know, the Holocaust victims, right? Many of them didn't only lose some family, they lost all their children, their wife, their, their parents, they lost everybody and they had every good excuse not to, not to get out of bed in the morning. But they weren't going to let that struggle overcome them. They said, you know what? We're going to rebuild our lives. We're going to take that struggle and make it very meaningful in our lives. We're going to make sure that we're going to not just survive, but we're going to overcome all our situations. Um, to, to, to add on to what you said, it's the focus in on the mission being the... Um, Whenever I'm talking to my students about like Tami Hamitzvah, focusing Judaism as a mission of purpose makes it worth doing. And it's not from a selfish standpoint because it's a noble mission. And the way I ground this is that if we look at the metaphor for the Jewish people in terms of purpose, well, let's take Christianity. What's the metaphor for Christianity? Bear your cross and march up the hill. And this is like a sudden, like noble, like, you know, you'll suffer for the other. In the Torah, what's our metaphor? An ol, a yoke. A yoke has a purpose. A yoke achieves something. A cross doesn't do anything. I mean, it sounds cool, but I mean, a yoke, you're achieving something. So when I'm involved in the Nyada, it's not just, we're just obedient. No, there's obedience to a noble purpose. And that's a, a mission. Um, just in terms of sharing your strategies, um, you know, 
somebody told me this, and I just repeated it over to one of my students, and she just told me how much it changed her, is that when it comes to Simcha, if I lift up this paper, so everyone notices probably the dot in the middle of the paper, but all around that dot is white. And the white is represented by all the chesed that the Kodesh Baruch Hu is giving us all the time. So when good things are going on, we keep, that just gets taken up in the white, and we don't, we're just always concentrating on the dot, which is there, and we have to deal with it. But we always have to remember the chesed. And in terms of one strategy, I'll just leave over. All of us, Baruch Hashem, are people who are davening and we have a relationship with Hashem. Every time we get up and daven Hashem Esrei, before you say modim, take five, take five seconds. Think about five things that you just want to say a thank you to Hashem. Thank you for my shalom bayis. Thank you for my health. Thank you for letting me live in Eretz Yisrael. Thank you for letting me have Chaparnasa. Whatever, it could be the same five things. You just want a strategy? A strategy is when we daven before you say modim, just to remember the chesed that Kodesh Baruch was always giving, sending our way, not ignoring the hardships and we have to deal with it. But it doesn't take away from the chesed and the ultimate simcha that we should always be having um, over and over again. I just want to add one thing that I always um, point out, like viewed as the most important paragraph in Derech Hashem from the Ramchal in the second section where he writes that a person has to realize that all of the good things that they have and all of the bad things that they have, they are all challenges. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives you situations. Your, that's your mission. That's your challenge, as was mentioned, the mission. And you've got to figure out how to deal with it. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave it to you because you can handle it. And that enables it, us to deal with things that are difficult, and sometimes we don't realize how difficult things that look easy are. We like to think, oh, if I would be wealthy, everything would be fine. The Ramchal talks about the challenge of wealth, challenge of poverty, challenge of struggle. Everything is our challenge in this world. I think one of the things that we are negatively influenced by the secular world is somehow or other a carefree life. We're in this world to work, we're in this world to earn eternity, and that only comes by overcoming the challenges and the struggles. We want to thank the panelists. Um, would be hold your applause. The panelists, it's obvious, but there's also you don't realize how much work goes in behind the scenes. I think they call it the back end. The computer programmers can tell us how important the back end is in any computer. You just sit there at the screen and you press the buttons and everything's working, and you don't realize what went into the back end to make the computer program work. The back end here, there's Emuna Diamond sitting there in the back, and she's the back end that made everything work for us. And of course, Donna and her whole staff, we want to thank them all. And um, this was the first half. The second half is waiting for you at uh, in the Yeshiva building, where our wonderful, devoted, unbelievable cook, Roni, has prepared a wonderful Malava Malka. And we're looking forward to everybody going there and spending time smoozing. Thank you all for coming again. It's been very heartwarming to see, I think, what is it, three or four years, since three years since the last oh, get-together. Bezrat Hashem, we should be able to renew every year. Thank you.